Well, let's take a moment just to pray one more time. Ask the Lord to bless our study together, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you for uh, waking us up, for bringing us to church, Lord, for giving us life and breath, as the Apostle Paul says, that you give to all creatures uh, freely to enjoy. Lord, thank you, and uh, we ask your blessing now on our time. We pray that you would uh, strengthen our church, that you would cause our church uh, to mature in the way of the faith that you've delivered to us once and for all, to have a comprehensive worldview, uh, to bring our entire life into conformity to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, as you can see, uh, today we are dealing with the subject of marriage and family. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to read this entire section here, uh, chapter 5, verse 22, all the way to verse uh, chapter 6, verse 4, okay? So let's look at that, um, and let me read it for us. I, I just thought it would be good for us to get uh, this whole passage uh, into our system, so to speak. So read along with me, or just, uh, that doesn't mean read out loud. <clears throat> we got we got different versions of the but we'd be speaking in tongues in here unintelligibly and people wouldn't know what we're saying. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever uh, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wow, this is, um, I mean, this is such an important section of Scripture. I'm almost tempted to move this to our pulpit, I mean, to be really honest, um, because I just think it's, you know, it's time for our church to hear some of these domestic codes, as they're called, and what Scripture talks about with respect to our domestic life, uh, family, marriage, uh, child-rearing, parenting, uh, all of those different avenues of the Christian life. It's so important because, you know, let's be honest, I mean, we live in a culture that is so confused about family and marriage. Um, more than that, uh, we live in a culture that degrades family and marriage, uh, tries to redefine marriage and family, uh, has no concept whatsoever uh, what it means to live in a healthy family marriage relationship. 
Uh, and even when it does, uh, it, it, you know, when it's not done to the glory of God, it is still deficient. I mean, I know plenty of Mormon families that look really nice on the outside, right? Um, but, and, and maybe even heathen families that run better than Christian families. But when it's not done for the glory of God, sadly, it's all for nothing. But it's still really important for us uh, to tackle this subject uh, because um, there's a crisis of marriage and family today in the church. Let me read to you from a book, and I was going to bring my my edition of it for show and tell. It's out on the bookstore, uh, the book table. It's called uh, Marriage, uh, God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberger. If you do not have that book, if you don't own that, you need to buy that book and put it in your home. Uh, the reason why is because it's a comprehensive scholarly treatment of uh, of those subjects of marriage of marriage and family. And I like the way he wrote the title, God, Marriage, and Family, in that order because that's the priority, right? First, we have to have our relationship with God secured or else nothing works. And then next is the marriage, and that is what's most important in the family home, right? It's not the relationship of father to son or mother to daughter. First, the priority is the marriage, right? Without that being intact, the rest of the family will suffer, and then it is the family. So it's very comprehensive, but the reason I love that book is because it's written, like I said, from a scholarly perspective. It's not so much a devotion. Uh, it's not just a collection of sermons, for example. It's a scholarly work, but it's readable. You, you can read it. You can work, manage through it, okay? It's got raving reviews by a lot of respected people uh, in, in the church today. But listen to what they say here, just to highlight the crisis of family today. He says, for the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family made up of father, mother, number of children, has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options, which can no longer be no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and family with its roots in the Hebrew scriptures has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, pragmatic utility, and an individual, uh, on an individual or a societal level. It can rightly be said that marriage and family are institutions under siege in, in our world today and that marriage and the family uh, excuse me, and that with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis. That's absolutely true. Um, the authors go on to specify that the only true remedy for this is a spiritual remedy, of course, because the issue is a spiritual problem, right? Um, I love, you know, going to the Creation Museum with Ken Ham. It's so, it's so interesting. The Creation, not the Ark, but the Creation Museum, he has an exhibit where you walk through sort of, uh, uh, the timeline of our culture and what's taken place. And because of evolution, because of secularism, because of humanism and postmodernism, uh, what has happened, which really the foundation of that is evolutionary thought, the idea that we're not creatures made in the image of God, that we are just kind of a combination of molecules, we're just matter in motion. We are, to quote uh, Bill Nye recently, who just recently said, we are just animals. And when you get to the end of the exhibit, what you see is just the decay of culture. And so you have, you know, broken homes and teenagers sitting there on the phone talking about how they need to get an abortion and this and that. And it just, it just illustrates so graphically where our society has come. 
Um, just, just amazing. Um, so what has happened is because of humanism, because of feminism, because of liberalism, because of these things, there's been a complete philosophical shift on the way that we think about marriage in, in total. Uh, so what is the result? I'm going to do a lot of talking today. You guys know me. I do a lot of back and forth in here, a lot of discussion. But there's just some things that I need to get out. So don't don't mind me if I read some of my notes today. I usually don't do that uh, for no other reason than just I like to talk to you. So um, and, and, and I think it just makes Sunday school a little bit more enjoyable. Right or wrong? Okay. Do you want me to come up here and just read to you a piece of paper? Okay. <laughs> Not very personal, right? Okay. But today I'm going to do a little of that. What's the result of secularism? Uh, when the, we have an evangelism conference coming in October, I've asked James White uh, to speak to us um, on how do we flourish in a secular humanistic age uh, as Christians. And um, he hasn't conceded to that yet. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if he agrees to do it. Uh, but this is what has happened because of secularism. As a result, marriage is seen as a joy killer. Fidelity is viewed as unattainable. Roles have been reversed or ignored altogether. Husband and wife no longer know what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. Children no longer revere parents. Parents take on the role of children and try more than anything to be accepted by their children. As a result, the child and parent relationship is completely upside down and perverted. Parents often act like their children, attempt to live vicariously through their children, focus on joking around with their children, forget that they are parents, and not, sim- and, 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 and not simply best friends with their children on social media. In other words, the authority of the parents has all but vanished. The roles in the marriage are in a state of freefall, and marriage has been regarded largely as a business arrangement or a retirement plan, extended dating and no longer reflects God's high purpose for marriage. This is why scripture is so necessary to correct the false notions. And so I go into this is why we need a biblical worldview on marriage and family, because these principles we can no longer assume are just going to be there. You know, we no longer live in a leave it to beaver culture, right? We live in a very uh, progressive, liberal, postmodern culture. Right. Uh, it's just uh, something we can no longer take uh, for granted. So we have to have a comprehensive and listen to this now very carefully here, uncompromising view of our domestic life. I say that because one of the things that secularism has done is that it seeped into the church. And because over the years it had seeped into the church, um, the church is 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 compromised. Uh, I'll give you an example on this. Pastors are terrified to talk about wives submit to your husbands. When I'm doing a wedding and I'm standing before a mixed multitude and I use the word submission, you will not believe the jihad looks that I get coming back at me, okay? Um, And the threats that I've had uh, by people because of preaching at weddings. Um, It's kind of fun, you know, because it's like, okay, who's going to assault me today, you know? (laughs) It happens because this is such a shock to people's systems, right? I remember sitting in a church once where a pastor was preaching about submission 
And he was making an ex- he, he he had some kind of analogy. He made an example of how he, uh, because of finances and budgeting, how he had uh, given a certain amount of money to his wife to go shopping. And then I heard a young lady in front of me, uh, who was not a Christian, lean over and say, "Doesn't she have her own money?" Like, hello, right? And so, I mean, think about it. We're 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 speaking from a redeemed mindset, from a, a Christian mindset, which is not perfect. I mean, Romans chapter twelve, verses one through three, right? We are slowly to conform our thinking to the Word of God, right? So we too. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have presuppositions, assumptions. We have these sort of uh, uh, basic worldview commitments that, that that have been affected by secularism, feminism, liberalism, that we don't even know we think in those categories, but we do. Um, I was astounded. I remember reading the biography of Jonathan Edwards, and I was so struck, and, and it's something for me to strive for in my own family and marriage. But uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, is famous for uh, being... A, a, a loving, caring, uh, happy father uh, who had a lot of times, he had 11 children, and he had a lot of times for each child to play with them and to spend time laughing with them and joking with them. But Jonathan Edwards was so revered in his home that the minute he walked into a room, the children immediately stopped everything they were doing and stood to attention because their father had walked into the room. It wasn't because a celebrity walked into the room. It wasn't because a, you know, LeBron James walked in the room. It wasn't because Trump walked in the room. Their father walked in the room. And they had such a reverence for their father, right, that they stood in attention. Uh, I tell you, I'm not telling all of you, well, unless your kids stand to attention in your homes, you know. But I am saying, look at the principle. Look at the reverence, right? Look at the fear. We're losing that. Um, and I know that in our church, it's a systemic problem. Uh, I know that in our church, we are way, we're light years away from where we need to be. Uh, I know that in our church, children disrespect their parents. I know that in our church, parents are very laxed in the way that they, you know, uh, discipline their children and are training their children and rearing their children in the fear of God. Uh, and so we have not attained to these, these standards that we're going to talk about here. Um, I'm going to go slow. Um, we're going to go through these, uh, issues meticulously because I think they're that important for us, right? I mean, practical theology. We've spent a lot of time looking at abstract theology, and I love that. Abstract theology just means, you know, we're looking at theology that, that really is not, uh, you know, has to do with our practical everyday lives in the sense of we're studying biblical theology or we're studying a concept like, you know, union with Christ or something like that. But practical theology is about our daily lives. It, it is, right? It is about getting a dad to spend time with his children and lead his family in a spiritual way and to start changing behavior patterns. Uh, that's what practical theology is about. Right now, um, you're not looked at as a source of authority in your home. Right now, the relationship with your children is this negotiation process. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to coerce your children to obey you or trick them into obeying you. That's because of the relationship and how upside down it is. You see what I'm saying? Um, how many of you guys know Emile Zwayne? 
Easy from Living Waters. You know who that is? He is the, he is the, what's his title right now? I don't know. He's basically the president of operations at Living Waters. Well, Easy's been in my life uh, since 1996. Shortly after I got saved, I met Easy. Uh, and then he became my pastor in like 99 or something. But, um, you know, he's renowned for the way he runs his home. Um, so much so that as a single man, I remember seeing the way that he ordered his family and his children. I was so impressed by the order and, and the reverence and the, the, the high standards that he had. I asked if I could come over and sit in on his family devotions. I wanted to see how he trained his children at night. And let me tell you, uh, it was hard work. Uh, he put in time. Uh, and, and I tell you, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and I wasn't the only one. Many people have done this because they're just wondering, how do you get your kids to obey you like that? You know what I mean? And yet, you guys have so much fun. You know what I mean? And the children are so happy. <laughs> I thought this was impossible. Um, but, but it's a lot. It's a lot of work. And I remember just initially encountering that example and thinking, gee, this is harsh. Like, well, this is over the top, right? That's because you know, of my uh, fallen worldly presuppositions that I had that were, you know, uh, just not in keeping with Christ and uh, they, they, they were not conforming to Scripture. And so um, uh, what I suggest is, look, find the most respectable family in the church. Uh, if you're a young Christian, you've only been saved for a few years uh, find the most respectable family in the church. Find the most respected father in the church. Find the most orderly mother in the church. And, and seek to pattern your life after them. Uh, go and learn of them. Humble yourself to the degree where you can learn something from them. You see what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and I think you will be really encouraged one uh, to another. And so, you know, I, I, I almost was tempted just to do a whole just introduction to family and marriage, just the whole concept. Uh, but I did want to get into uh, the first section uh, of this passage, which is uh, the duties of wives. And remember I told you a little bit earlier that pastors are terrified? <laughs> Let me tell you, pastors are afraid to talk about this. They don't like to talk about the word submission, number one, right? Because it's just so taboo in our culture. We're not supposed to talk that way anymore. Um, but as I was looking at this, I'm thinking, well, first of all, I'm not afraid to talk about it. Second of all, this is the glory of God that we're looking at here. This is good, right? Uh, uh, I hope that you've come to the place in your Christian walk now where you can say, uh, you know, like Paul, let, let God be true and every man a liar. Look, I know nothing. God knows everything. Uh, I need to submit my mind to the will of God. I need to submit my will to the will of God. You, you see what I'm saying? And, and not question God or rebel against God in, in any way. Um, and then, and then just, we'll, we'll get into this, but just the wisdom of God, the safety of God that, that He provides is everywhere. So let's just read this section. Uh, what we're looking at here is verses, uh, 22 all the way down to verse 24, right? That's the section. So let's read it again. It says, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So uh, just to reiterate, today we're going to focus on this. 
okay? This is not to let guys off the hook. Your, t- your time is coming, okay? But today, we're going to focus on this uh, aspect of these what, what, what scholars call domestic codes. In other words, the way that we order our lives in the home. Um, by the way, how do we be, how do we even start? Well, how about this? How about there is order in the home? How about we just start by adopting that? that there is order in the home, first of all, and that we're not just going to settle for there's no order, there's no protocol, uh, there's no structure. Uh, no, there has to be. There has to be that. Okay, so, <clears throat> Uh, this is very convicting, and admittedly so. I mean, this is all very convicting and very good for us, very sanctifying. Uh, but first, just again, the principle of submission itself. Uh, what does the Bible teach in terms of submission? Brothers and sisters, I've often said this, that the Christian life is a life of submission. What are the different things that we are called to submit to? Government, authority, human institutions, right? How would you teach submission to your children? Are children called to submit to their parents? Well, then how would you teach them that principle, right? What would you tell them? Anyone? Well, kind of what we just talked about, huh? Exactly. You just show your children that there's a protocol in life, right? That they submit to you just like mommy submits to daddy, just like daddy submits to the government, just like the whole family has to submit to God, right? There's a whole submission process, right? Um, and, and, and so, again, not to bring culture or feminism back into this, but it's a big deal. Um, today, uh, again, if you talk about a wife submitting to her husband in this Oprah Winfrey pop culture, secular nonsense that we live in today, you are basically guilty of spiritual abuse. I mean, I hope you understand that's how bad our culture is. If you say that you want to be a submissive wife to your husband, this culture will look at you like you need medicine, right? Like you need to be put in a padded room somewhere, right? Because you're not a queer transgender you know, gender fluid person, right? You're not the model of society. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's incredible, but this is where we've come, you know? Uh, 50 years, just in 50 years, think about this. Think about this. In the stage of world history, the last 50 years of our culture, we have seen a total deconstruction of human civilization. Think about that. Let that, let that hit you with the gravity that it needs to hit you with. That I'm talking to students at UNT. Brian will tell you <clears throat> because I was talking this week to a lesbian student at UNT, and let me tell you that as I'm trying to promote salvation and forgiveness of sins and Jesus Christ to this young girl, I am regarded as the essence of evil. That I am the height of bigotry and everything. Somebody <laughs> I was preaching one time. Like, Kid walked by, gave me a little pin, the pin on my shirt. He says, you are what's wrong with this world. <laughs> I, said, I think I still have it. It's like souvenirs from UNT. <laughs> I am what's wrong with this world. I am the essence of evil. And she is the model of what is accepted culturally today, uh, her worldview. And um, it's, we, we, we are... Uh, 
we're definitely at war uh, in the church uh, with the spirit of this age. Yes, ma'am. Wayne Grudem. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Feminism, the New Path to Liberalism. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, he in that in that book he actually chronicles how entire seminaries, Bible colleges, denominations went from egalitarian uh concepts, uh the idea that women can teach in this capacity over a man or that capacity over a man, to eventually women can preach over men uh, as and be pastors, to all the way to homosexual clergy. It started, and he chronicles how it started, and the progression and the slippery slope exactly, and where that where that leads. Uh, but just again, the principle of submission. Turn to First Peter chapter three. Okay, First Peter chapter. This is a good. This is what Kostenberger calls a balance between submission and sensitivity. Um, because we part of what we're got to be careful to talk about here is what submission is and what submission is not. How submission works and how it should never work, right? Uh, first Peter chapter three, beginning in verse one. It says, in the same way you wise be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, what do you think that's referring to when he says, even if they are not obedient, uh, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, what do you, I mean, don't we all kind of disobey the word once in a while, right? Or none of us are perfect. So it, it doesn't mean that, right? It's not talking about maybe missing the mark or something like that. What do you think it means by this? If some of them are disobedient to the word? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. That's right. It's, it's those who refuse to submit to the authority of scripture. And so what is a wife to do when a husband goes into that or is that? Um, well, here it says that, that uh, they may be one without a word because of the ha- behavior of the wife as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. makes absolutely no sense that a husband that is walking in disobedience to God, that is not living the Christian life, it makes absolutely no sense in the eyes of the world on the carnal level for a wife at that point to be respectful. And um, I have one big example of this. A young lady used to go to church with in Southern California. She, she was, she was known for having that husband who, who, who was in the world and she was at home with all the kids and, and, and he was out partying and everything like that. And he'd come home from a drunken stupor and she'd have dinner cooked for him. And she'd be respectful and submissive. She wouldn't berate him and yell at him and all of these things. And she would just endure that in obedience to the word. And now that family is a missionary family in the Middle East. He got saved. And and now they got like 11 kids. Yeah, there's going to start a reality show soon. <laughs> but look at that, right? We would have never thought. And listen, boy, you know, sometimes you thank God you have, I wasn't born. A, I don't know if I could do this. I think the Lord knew that when he created me. It's like, 
nah, he's, he's, he can't do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the women that can do this, oh, I tell you the level of godliness that it takes to do this, the self-control. I'd be waiting for you at dinner table with a bat talking about, let alone. <laughs> huh? Yeah, that's what I mean. God's ways are better than our ways, brother. Higher, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yeah, that's right. So, but look at the biblical worldview. It's one of humility, um, chaste, respectful behavior. Uh, for his sake? Is it for the husband's sake? No. It's for his sake, right? And if you lose sight of that, you won't be able to obey this, right? Uh, and he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Ironically enough, just had a girl at UNT ask me this. She said, I think she said something like, do you have a daughter? Do you have a, do you have a child? Do you have a daughter? I said, yes. She said, do you braid her hair? I said, no, not yet. <laughs> right? And, and, and she was quoting this verse, because she said, doesn't it say somewhere there and you can't braid the hair? Right? They just remember enough of the word of God just to try to tear it down. Think about that. Yay, yay, yay. Yeah, exactly. Right? So what is, what is he saying here? No, notice what he didn't say though. Notice what, look at the text carefully, verse 3. Your adornment must not be with the braiding of the hair. No, 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 no. That's not what he said. He says, must not be merely external. And then here are examples of mere externality, right? Braiding hair, gold jewelry, putting on dresses. He didn't say, don't braid your hair, don't put on jewelry, and don't put on a dress, right? Um, and of course, there's, there is some cultural emphasis behind these terms. Uh, commentators have pointed out that, and the people that Peter's writing to, and in the first century, uh, women, in order to be vain and pomp and immodest and in order to uh, draw attention to themselves, they would braid their hair in elaborate ways, weaving gold into their hair and trying to attract as much attention to themselves as possible. So obviously there's probably that behind that. Uh, but, but he didn't say that, you know, that these things are wrong in themselves. He's saying, don't let this be the only thing that adorns you, right? Even if I say the main thing that adorns you. Yes, ma'am. What's that? Yes, ma'am. It is the motive behind it. That's right. It is the motive. I mean, I would say, of course, certain articles of clothing are objectively wrong, right? I mean, anytime, you know, my principle for modesty, which I think he talks about that here, right, is, is, you know, too short, too high, too tight, uh, and you're, and you're, you're entering into troubled waters. You know what I mean? So how do you, how, you know, not only that, my principle has always been, and I've talked to many, many ladies, uh, that struggle with modesty. And my thing has always been, um, instead of, well, what qualifies as modesty? Forget that standard. The standard should be pursue modesty, right? You should be pursuing modesty instead of, well, what, how close to the edge can I get of what's considered modest, right? What's too low, too high, too tight type of thing, right? Uh, forget that. Pursue things that you know speak of modesty. Whoops. That reminded me of an uh, example uh, by R.C. Sproul. And he was talking about the philosopher Berkeley, who uh, was 
a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards who said that, um, you know, you, that he was talking about the power of sensation. And so he took the, Alfie Sproul took the marker or the chalk and he threw it at somebody in the audience. And he said, you will probably forget everything I taught today, but you will never forget that I threw that piece of chalk at you. That's how powerful our senses are. Anyway, I didn't throw it at you. I didn't throw it at you. No offense, please. But, but you know the illustration, okay? And he said that that was kind of the background behind Jonathan Edwards, and that's why Jonathan Edwards used such vivid language in his preaching and stuff, because the, the sensations behind that, it makes things stick. Anyway, um, I had to throw that in there, sorry. Any questions up to this point? Anything? No wrong comments here. Yep. So I see the nearly huh? is not in the original. You have a translation. You have a translation uh, decision to make there. And merely is right for a couple of reasons. One of them has to be also the context. Because if you just stick to uh, saying it without some sort of qualification like that, then what you're, then what you're saying is that women shouldn't put dresses at all. You see what I'm saying? So there has to be some sort of translation that happens there. And I think the best scholars, I think the NASB has gotten it right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. In other words, you don't have to submit to other people's husbands. Yeah. Well, possibly, uh, but I think it just emphasizes the union that you're supposed to have with your husband, and the order and the confines of submission. That's what that's why I was talking about earlier. And I have it in my notes where we talk about what submission is and what it is not. Right? Women are not called to submit to other husbands. Right? Uh, that's not the protocol. Yes, sir. It's, it's not necessarily to another husband, but it is. There's a general submission right before that verse um, that says that we are to submit to each other, one to another. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's talking about body life. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. That's right. Amen. Um, but again, uh, verse five it says, "For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands." There it is. Uh, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, what's the what's the carryover? Well, folks, I want to say this. Verse 6, very controversial, calling him Lord. I mean, so what am I saying? Heritage, grace, every wife better walk around calling their husband Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm also not going to weaken the potency of what that what this is saying. Uh, the reason that, that Peter is pointing this out is not because, well, this was just, this was just in every culture and everybody did this. No, remember, he's pointing out an exemplary woman. He's pointing out a rare example of submission. And uh, uh, Sarah went so far as to regard him as Lord, not in a divine sense, right? Uh, but Lord in a reverent sense, right? That she had so much reverence for him, it would be almost as if she would say, yes, sir. I, I see Christian women do this all the time. You know, when a husband says something, yes, sir. And there's a, remember, this is in the context of marriage. There's an endearment there, 
right? This is not based out of a fear or tyranny or abuse, right? Um, but hey, listen, Sarah feared the Lord. She was such a godly woman, not a perfect woman. We know that from Genesis. She followed her husband into sin at times, which was not godly, right? But this is why Peter is focusing on one example. And then it says, um, not being frightened by any fear. Isn't that amazing? Not being frightened by any fear. What do you suppose, why does Peter say that? What, what is he talking about there? Why, why the mention not being frightened by any fear? I always found that to be a perplexing clause. What is he referring to there? Anyone? So you think it's just fear of man in general? or Like not fearing what people think? Okay. Okay. That's good. It's a good observation. I don't think that's what he means, uh, but I think it that's definitely relevant. Yes, ma'am? Trusting God? But what does he mean by f- not frightened by any fear? Fear of what? Marlene? Whose authority? Okay. The husband's authority? You have anything else? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think there's a, there's a spectrum here, right? Where, remember what the context was, was submitting to a husband who maybe even doesn't obey the word. Could that be fearful? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes ma'am. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of women are already dealing with a lot of fear, anxiety, right? And then on top of that, you have to somehow entrust yourself and surrender that position of being taking charge, right? Um, that's hard, you know? Um, so, so would you say maybe yes, sir? this is um, maybe maybe an, another way of thinking about this could be like, like, like a boldness? Like if doing it boldly, fearlessly in the way that she sure. uh, leads by submission or if, if her husband isn't, right? If, if it's that kind of situation, but maybe the, the, uh, the, the, her character as being bold, yeah. being yeah, being fearless, like the Proverbs 31 woman. She's not afraid of the snow for her children. Uh, also, she laughs at the future, Proverbs 31, right? So there is sort of a, what, what does a godly woman look like? Well, she's a woman that trusts God so much that she's willing to obey such a difficult command at times to submit to an ungodly man, right? That could bring tons of fear, anxiety, maybe even an abusive man. Um, certainly, that would elicit fear, right? Um Maybe you're living under persecution under your own roof, right? Uh, that happens. Yes, sir? Well, what if it's just like a godly man who is like just making decisions and she could be fearful of the choice that he's making for the family? Like she might just not be certain as to what he's doing and so she might be fearful of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, just ask Trish. I've made a bunch of foolish decisions. I don't even know what she's still doing here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm serious about that. Stop recording. (laughs) 
Ultimately, the attitudes and standards within our marriage and in our own family is a gospel issue, being rooted in our spirit-wrought union with Christ who transforms our lives. The marriage and family that is seeking to conform to Scripture's commands must be motivated by the reality of the power of God at work in us. That's right, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, it is the disobedient, that Paul's talking about there, says who deny the have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof what does that mean to deny the power thereof remember now has a form of godliness so what's the subject godliness but they deny the power thereof what's the antecedent godliness what is the power that they're denying the power of godliness what does that mean yes sir Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, amen. I mean, ultimately, after studying this passage, you know, and reading uh, extensively on that verse, because I always wondered what that's talking about, my the way that I interpret that is that the denying the power thereof is a denial of the power for the gospel to transform your life. You deny that its power is effective in changing you. What you're saying is, you're not you're unwilling to conform you don't have the power to conform right yes you do actually right we're being transformed second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 we're being transformed into the image right of 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 christ and so <clears throat> so many uh, different things there as we think about the roles of husband and wife in a gospel-centered perspective This passage in Ephesians deals with submission and can be outlined in the following ways. Can be outlined in the following ways, maybe next week. I'm not going to get to this. It's not not even going to be possible. I guess I did do an introduction on family and marriage. But I guess here's, here's the concern. The concern that I have, you know, and that you should have, is that your family and your marriage has to have a direction. You're going somewhere. Um, you have to. Uh, as, a, as a family, you're growing in this, right? As parents, I'm very, very concerned uh, for our church in the area of child rearing that your children obey first-time obedience, that there's not this negotiation process. You guys know I train dogs, right? I'm not calling your children dogs. I'm not calling our children dogs. <laughs> I guess until they're Satan. No, but I find myself telling people in in the in the act of training a dog, no negotiating. Come on, do you want to go outside? Come on. Do you want to sit for mommy? <laughs> we do this negotiating with our pets, right? And sometimes we do that with children, right? What do you want to do today? Do you want to eat this? You don't want that? Okay, maybe I'll cook you something else. (laughs) And we so condition and we so just cater to them in everything, right? And, and what I'm saying is that, and that what the effect, 
you know, a parent once told me, asked him, why do you do first-time obedience? Why, why do you insist on first-time obedience? And this person told me, God forbid that my child should run out in the middle of the street and they hear their father's voice, but they're so used to disregarding him that they don't fear enough to look at the car that's coming. When I speak, I want my children to obey, right? And if not, um, there has to be consequences. And we'll talk about that once we get to chapter six, but, but you know what I mean? It's, and, and let's face it, let's, let's just as, as an act of open confession and repentance, let's admit we're lazy. Let's admit we're, we're, we often are, we're pushovers, right? And, you know, often our children are just a reflection of us, right? Because we lack discipline and because we lack, right, the, the character and the discipline and the consistency in our own character, it's reflected in the way that our children look at us and treat us and disregard us. I'm very concerned about our, our families and our church that we understand what is proper protocol when we're doing hospitality at people's houses. Um, I, was with a, I was with a friend once who, who also said, you know, um, the way that I grew up is you disobey at someone's home, we're going home. Uh, that's it. We're going home. We're cutting it short, and I have to go train you, right, because... You're not there at someone's house to break things. You're not there to jump on everything. You're not there to take over the conversation. You're not there to dominate the the, the, the hospitality session, right? As children that are not taught to to know where their place is in human relations uh, will manifest that in different ways in the future to worse degrees, right? Um, What's that? Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. I have friends who insist that when mommy and daddy are talking to someone and you walk up, you're not allowed to speak, meaning you're not allowed to interrupt. You know what I mean? Because adults are talking and, and mommy and daddy, they're not allowed to go up to two people talking and say, hey, 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 you guys. <laughs> but somehow we think it's okay for kids to do that, right? And so where's the standard? The standard has to be one of reverence, right? I mean, just read the Proverbs, right? Read Proverbs 31 there before he gets to the proverbial woman and read how the, the, the mother instructs her son. She is constantly pouring wisdom into him, training him, teaching him. Everything is hands-on. Nothing is hands-off. J.C. Ryle says... I don't permit children to decide anything. They don't get to decide anything as long as I'm training them. And I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who said, if you don't begin training your children at 18 months, it's too late. Wow. Meaning you have already allowed for rebellion to take root. And now you got a job on your hands. It's not unredeemable, but what I know what she's saying. It's that the plumb line has already been off, 
And you've already set yourself up for more work than you wanted to do because you waited too long to discipline and to train. Yes, ma'am. Pretty normal, right, parents? <laughs> Good. Good, he should. Yeah, you might need to spank harder. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, you want to see? <laughs> We, <laughs> right, we're, we're so, we're, we're so out of time, but really quick, really quick, you guys, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, let's go, let's go there just really quick, just to remind you of the incentive of what we're talking about, right? Um, remember the analogy here that this is not simply babysitting time, right? Everything in marriage and family is a gospel issue, right? There's always some sort of analogy, redemptive analogy to everything that we're doing. Uh, verse four, have you not, you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed and you're striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endured. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. You're like you, you, you're, 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 you're an Ill, illegitimate child if there's no discipline in your life. It's a bastardization of children not to discipline them. Think about that. And it's because you don't care enough. It says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers that discipline us, uh, uh, as, and we respected them. Shall we not rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, there's a goal, guys. There's an end. There's an end in sight. There's a finish line. Afterwards, it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. Your children, I remember in high school, hanging out with my heathen friends we would laugh and mock the friends whose parents did not discipline them, who would party with them, who would allow them and aid and abate them in their party habits, right? Smoking and drinking and mom's laughing about it. We would talk about, your parents don't even love you. And kids would be falling under shame. And that's so true. The word of God is true. See why I should have preached this? 
out of time. I'm in trouble. 